pray with me. Father, once again, we come to have your word open for us. Make our hearts attentive. Help us to see wonderful things from your law. Help us to see what you want us to see about who you are, that we may leave today marveling at who you are, impressed with who you are, changed by who you are. Thank you, Father, for being here. Please speak to us now and help our hearts to receive all that we should hear in your name. Amen. I have a lot of technology going on right now, and uh, doing two things at once is not my forte. Uh, but thank you again uh, for letting me be with you this morning in worship. Thank you for being in worship here yourselves. Uh, this morning, I would like to, uh, I don't know what else to say other than inaugurate sort of a, a sermon series, um, which is kind of funny because I'm not going to be here every week, as you know. Uh, but you have invited me back, and I need to know where I'm going, even if you don't care. Uh, you're ready to receive whatever the Lord has for you, but I, I'm, not that, I'm not built that way. So um, I, I would like to, uh, as I come, to be able to talk to you on a, on a subject or look at a specific part of Scripture. And so I would like to focus, if we could, on the I Am statements of Jesus. And uh, the reason I, I do that is because as Jesus is moving around in his day amongst crowds of people, uh, often who, who is he is the question. And uh, several people had answers to that question, but in one way or, or another, uh, they thought one thing of him, and uh, some, some were positive things, some were negative things. But then Jesus starts to answer the question, who he is. And he does this one way in uh, a sense of metaphor, using the I am statements that you're familiar with, and comparing him to to something else. It's a metaphor that compares him to something else, such as the bread of life, the, the light of the world, door or gate, good shepherd, resurrection life, and the way to truth to life, true vine, and then a statement before Abraham was born, I am. Those are considered the I am statements. I might have slipped an extra one in there on you than what's traditional, but um, I, that doesn't mean I'm going to be coming back that often. Those are just what Jesus said, okay? So don't, some of y'all are scared. Are we going to have this guy eight times in a row like this? No, don't worry about that. Uh, you'll be fine. But as, uh, as, we, as we talk about this, Jesus uses these statements to emphasize who he was and why it's important that he is and was who he is. And this tended to create sort of a tension among those who were listening. We're going to see when Jesus puts out these kinds of statements. It, it tended to polarize people. Some people enjoyed what they were hearing, and it made Jesus more attractive to them. Other people uh, didn't. It repelled them from what Jesus was saying, and they became, uh, they became angry or more frustrated or more disappointed in who he was. And one thing that was clear is that when you make statements like this, like Jesus did, it forces people to respond. And, and you're either going to respond negatively or you're going to respond positively. And so that's where I hope to go. And yet, after having said that, that I want to go through the I am statements in John, as we're able, I'm going to throw you a curveball and not be in the book of John this morning. <laughs> and uh, because there, there is a background story 
to these I am statements in the book of Exodus. And I want to lay that this morning as sort of a foundation before we get on to what Jesus was talking about. And so this morning, I'm going to stay in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus, I believe, when he's talking, when he says I am, he's building on a foundation that has been laid 1,500 years before he ever spoke this. And when he said I am, I think that his audience were, were drawn to facts that they already knew about. And the way they knew about this is they were familiar with Exodus 3, where God introduces himself to Moses. And so uh, there are some historical applications and implications when Jesus speaks. And we, I think it would behoove us to say, to know that when Jesus speaks, he's referencing something else about himself. And uh, you're, you're going to have to trust me a bit, but I think this is going to help us get a handle on when Jesus speaks. So we're going to be in Exodus 3. I would like to start with verse 1 and go to 15. But before we do that, let me pray again, please. Father, we're grateful for your word, and this is your word. I pray that you would all help us to, you would help us all to understand the difference between your word and the words of men, commenting on your words. And Lord, we just ask that your spirit would be both in my thoughts as well as everybody else's in the room. Help me to speak clearly, help them to listen well. Uh, I pray that your people would be um, more in love with you, more at awe with you more appreciative of you, more worshipful of you, more trusting of you as a result of us being here. Change us, we pray, by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. 
Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. That's the word of the Lord. Now, as you recognize in this passage, God introduced himself to Moses in an unusual way. This is a real turning point in Moses' life. Uh, He was born a Hebrew but raised Egyptian royalty. He killed a man. He ran away from Pharaoh into a different country called Midian where he married a woman and worked for her father. Zipporah was her name. Uh, He worked for her father. Jethro's his name. And he worked as a shepherd. And so for 40 years, he's taking care of Jethro's sheep. And this is one day in the life of those 40 years right? And so Moses has settled down into a fairly quiet life as a shepherd, and that is until this day that chapter 3 describes. And so let's look at this a little bit more closely, uh, though I'm not going to look at it incredibly close until we get towards the end where I want to focus. It says, now Moses was pastoring a flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So I would assume Moses had having a pretty average shepherd's day working for his father-in-law. He took the, the flock of sheep uh, to pasture them in, a, in an area around Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai. And this, this mountain is going to become increasingly significant because in just a few months, uh, maybe 18 months or something like that, Moses is going to climb up on Mount Sinai and get the Ten Commandments from God. And this is a sign. When my, Moses comes back later, uh, it's going to be a sign that God was with Moses the whole time, that he's going to, next time he's here to get the Ten Commandments, he's going to have the Hebrew nation with him, right? And so uh, Exodus, Exodus 3 is really not a special day until this weird thing happens is starting with verse 2 it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush and he looked and behold the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed so Moses said I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up so it's a strange sight that obviously requires a certain a a second look just a bush burning out of nowhere and even more uh, weirdly as it burns it's still there it's not consumed and so Moses goes to investigate and uh, the the angel of the Lord is there and that also makes it incredibly weird situation the angel of the Lord uh, is not what you'd expect on your average shepherding day and so Moses had to take a closer look but before we go into what, what happens next, I, I kind of want to look at this idea of, of the angel of the Lord as it appears in the New Testament, just for clarity. And the angel of the Lord appears several times in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament. And when you trace these occurrences, you start to know some significant things about this particular angel, and it becomes clear it's not a typical angel. And here's some points about the angel of the Lord that uh, I think we can glean from things scraped together from other appearances. That the angel of the Lord is perceived to be God by those who are there. Hagar thought he was God. The angel of the Lord speaks as if he is God. He claims to be the one who made Old Testament covenants. 
The angel of the Lord is separate from God and obeys God because the Lord uh, told the angel of the Lord to put his sword away in uh, First Chronicles. The angel of God is sent by God, and uh, Manoah prays it to God. He hears God, and the angel of the Lord is sent to uh, Manoah. The angel of the Lord forgives sin in Zechariah. The angel of the Lord uh, both judges and avenges Israel in uh, several passages. The angel of the Lord accepts worship uh, when, when Gideon is confronted with the angel of the Lord, it's real, it's real funny to me. He tells the angel, stay here, I need to go prepare a meal. And he goes and cooks this elaborate meal, and I guess the angel of the Lord is just staying there, right? And so Gideon brings this back, and he worships, uh, he worships uh, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord accepts the worship. He, he, he just, uh, for lack of a better term, he, he just consumes with fire. He blasts the food and consumes the food. That, that Gideon has prepared for him. The angel of the Lord is comforted by, uh, uh, it brings comfort to Elijah and uh, actually prepares a meal for the prophet. So in one case, somebody's preparing a meal for him, and another, he prepares a meal for that person. The angel of the Lord uh, makes covenantal promises. And uh, so what we find is uh, the, the word angel means messenger, somebody who's sent. And the, and the angel of the Lord often does bring a message, as he does right here, uh, in all the situations we consider. But angels don't usually receive worship. As a matter of fact, when people try to worship angels, angels will say, stop doing that. But this angel doesn't. He, he accepts and encourages worship. Therefore, all of these things together make us think that Moses doesn't see just any old angel, but he sees a theophany, a picture of God, representing himself in a burning bush. And it becomes clear as they speak that he is speaking, in fact, to the Lord. And so if you think, well, he's speaking to the Lord, uh, which member of the Trinity is he speaking of? Who is the angel of the Lord? Is it God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Who is it? And um, normally we think of, of God the Father creating covenants, and yet this angel of the Lord says he's a part of covenant making. And there are other times, uh, so it looks like God's, however, other times it looks more like the Son, because the angel of the Lord is sent by, by the Father. And therefore, I would I would agree with most commentators, it says that this is not just a theophany, but a, a, actually Christ, the second person of the Trinity, before Jesus is born, is, is addressing Moses here. Okay, so I, I believe this is Christ before Jesus is born, all right? Um, all that helps us understand the Bible a little bit better, uh, I think, in, in, our, in our passages as we, as we turn to Moses in 4, um, and then compare what he says here with what Jesus is going to say with, when he says the I am statements, you're going to see a continuity, particularly if the angel of the Lord is the second person in the Trinity, right? And so that helps us understand better. Verse 4 says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Now notice that God calls Moses by name. There's not going to be any confusion who God wants to speak to here. He calls Moses over, and he says the ground is holy and makes Moses take off his shoes. Now, uh, things... Ground is not holy in and of itself. 
ground has to be made holy, and the way this ground is made holy is the presence of the Lord. It's because God is there that this is a holy place. And Moses has to remove his shoes, a symbolic gesture, recognizing and respecting the fact that God is here. Verse 6, he says, he said also, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, you might think God doesn't need to introduce himself by saying who he is, but we have to remember that God hasn't shown up in this kind of way for over 400 years. And so not only has this not been seen recently, even the stories of God showing up have started to fade, probably. And so nobody is expecting God to show up. Moses is certainly overwhelmed, and therefore God identifies himself in terms that Moses can understand. Moses knows who the patriarchs are, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God introduces himself in a very familiar way. He could have said, you know, I'm the one who created life. I'm the one who gives you breath. I'm, I'm the God of the universe. He doesn't say all that. He references Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's immediately associating himself with his previous work amongst Israel. God has been leading these people previously. This is the same God who's showing up to lead them now. And he makes that reference to make that connection. Notice that Moses physically covers up in fear. In verse 7, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cries because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land of, uh, to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Of significance here, of many things, God calls Israel my people. And we need to be clear why God thinks this way. There's a sense in which everybody is God's people because he creates everybody. He can point to any one of us, all of us, every one of us on the earth and say, these are my people because he brought us about. However, that's not what's happening here. He calls them my people because they occupy a special relationship with him that other groups of people do not hold with him. This is explained in a couple passages in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, 14, and 15 say, Behold, to the, to the Lord your God belong heavens and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. He chose your, their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. God narrows down his focus of attention on one specific group of people. Deuteronomy 7, 8, and 9 says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to you, to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the ha hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
So Israel's my people because God created them, but they're my people because he set a special love on them, more than just a caretaking love. He loves everybody in the sense he feeds and, and shelters everybody to the extent he does, that he gives them life and health to the extent he does. He loves everybody in that sense because there is creation. But this group of people, God loves them in a saving way, in a way that brings relationship between he and they. It's a relationship based on love and faithfulness. He has that kind of relationship with this particular group of people. Now, when God says he remembers his people, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten them before and now they're brought back to his memory. Uh, God can't do that. If you, if you have to remember something, you're not God, okay? Uh, if you forgot something, you're not God. And so this is language that implies something else. And whenever God, when you look at when God remembers something in the Old Testament, what that means is I'm about to do something big. That's God's way of I'm about to do something big. Watch what happens next, right? And so he, it isn't brought to his memory. It's, it's brought to the front of his activity is what it is. And God shares that he's got a big plan with Moses. He's about to bring his people out of slavery. They've been there for 400 years. And he's going to establish in a land that he's been preparing for them. That's the plan. And God's remembering means the plan's about to go into another phase of activity. And that's Moses' key to that, obviously. So, uh, so far, we have some good information from Moses. Uh, however, it's about to get more serious. Okay, so that, that's good background. I'm sure Moses is enjoying everything he hears up until verse 10. And verse 10 starts to make him a little nervous because it gets to the point of God's visit to him. It says, therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses got a problem. He doesn't feel like he's the guy to be talking to the head of state in Egypt, particularly given the fact that he's 40 years ago was a, a criminal who had to run from his lot for his life. So he's got some legal problems that still might be there, but that's not the only problem. So he asked, the, who am I to do this kind of question, right? Who am I to talk to Pharaoh, and who am I to bring out the sons of Israel? And, and he just doesn't feel like he's the right man for it. And I think this is quite a reasonable question, why me, right? Who am I to speak to the head of a, an empire? Who am I to lead out your people from Egypt? And, and so I, I like these series of questions. I'd probably ask the same questions myself because no matter what you think of Moses' advantages or disadvantages, no matter what you think of his resume, uh, the job is overwhelming. The job is really an overwhelming job. And so Moses asked some very good questions about why me? As you go to verse 12, though, you see God ignores all those questions. Doesn't answer one of them. And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. Moses' qualifications and his disqualifications don't really matter. What's important is that God will be with him. And so God goes straight to the point. Not, it's not about you. It's whether I'm with you or not. And I'm guaranteeing I'm going to be with you. And that's what God says. And that uh, the point that Moses will be accompanied by God will ensure whatever Moses brings to the table does not matter. Right? And, and the sign that God is with them is when he returns to this very place with the Israelites 
and they worship God at this place. And you'll see that happen in verses nine, or excuse me, chapters 19 and 20. And uh, verse 13 goes on to say, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What should I say to them? So there's another objection that Moses has. I'm going to go up to these people who I haven't been around in 40 years, and I'm going to tell them that God has sent me to free them from their oppression. They're obviously going to ask a couple questions. Number one, who are you? Just like I asked the question, who am I, in Moses' case. But then they're going to ask the question, who is, who is God? Who is it that you represent? And so if Moses' first concern is, who am I to do this? His second concern is, who are you to the Hebrew people? And this is another reasonable point, right? Israel's heard of God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They know some of those stories, even if they're fading. But he hasn't spoken like this in 400 years, and now a stranger's going to come up and say, I represent this God? The first thing they're going to ask is, who is he? Who do you represent? Now, if you follow the way that the Old Testament names and describes things, naming something or someone is a significant event, right? You're trying to get at the essence of who this person is. You're trying to get at the essence of what this place is. And that's why sometimes when something of significance happens, a person will have their name changed or a place will have its name changed because the significance, the name needs to reflect the significance of what's happening. And, and, and so naming something or someone is more than just putting an identifying label on it. You're trying to do something more than that. You're trying to get at what the essence is. And, and it, it happens in places. It happens with people. And so Abraham, uh, when, when, when Moses is talking to the Hebrew people, he needs to tell them something about this God he represents. And in verses 14 and 15, God gives Moses two answers. The first one's a bit strange, and the second one is traditional. And I want to spend some time here. So that was my introduction, right? Now we're going to get to the message. Okay, so verse 14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. God responded to what Moses was saying to give him an answer that is a bit hard to understand. It's a phrase that uses the verb am or be twice in it, right? I am who I am, that kind of thing. And, and I need to explain some of the difficulty behind getting to a good translation about this from the Hebrew to, to English. Um, one of the problems is you don't know what tense it's in. Okay, because you don't know if it's I am who I am or I will be who I will be. And, and that's because in Hebrew, the tense is carried by, by the vocalization of the vowels. When you say the vowels, you know it. Like, like we'll, we'll change the wording. They don't change the wording. They change the vowels in a word. Now, let me give you an example. If you change the words in, or excuse me, you change the vowels in my name, you get a totally different word. For example, my name is Pat. If you change the vowels, you get either pet, pit, put, pot. So you, you change the words. You change the whole meaning, right? 
And in Hebrew, you don't get a different word, you get a different tense. And, and so, um, he, let me show you here. And, and I know you know your Hebrew, so we'll just fly right by this, right? You see there's some big, there's some big giant squigglies, and then you got some small squigglies around the big squigglies, right? The big ones are consonants. The little ones around it are vowels, okay? And, and our phrase is this. This is, I am who I am. But there's a little bit of a problem there. Okay, and if you look at this, um, you'll notice that these are kind of similar, but they're not the same in their lines. And and actually, the phrase in the Bible looks a little bit more like uh, line three. And you see, line three doesn't have the dots and the squiggles that line two does, does it? And and what that means is there's only consonants there. And when you have early versions, early manuscripts of Hebrew, that's all they had was the consonants. And in fact, if you go and look at pictures of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can Google that up, you'll see that it's a bunch of big consonants without all the little squiggly ones around it, the vowels. And, and what happens is, 500 years after Christ, Jewish leaders have a crisis because they notice when people were, were reading it without the consonants, or excuse me, without the vowels, they were getting different pronunciations. Okay, and where you lived, you threw a little accent on. If you lived down south, you had this southern drawl. If you lived up north, it was sharper and that kind of stuff. And people started pronouncing things differently, right? And so they said they they needed to have uh, they needed to have some vowels so that they would have some consistency, and it wouldn't sound like one person was saying pat, pet, put, pit, whatever. And it was it, it, the only way you knew how to say it was to listen to how your parents said it. And if your parents said it one way, you'd say it the way they said it. And so Jewish scholar says it's not good to just keep saying what your parents say and everybody have a different pronunciation depending on where you live or whether your parents had a stuttering problem or something like that. That's not good. And so they put the vowels in the text. They kept the big consonants where they were and around them drew the vowels, right? The smaller ones. And so after they got that, you get a order of pronunciation. All of a sudden, everybody's pronouncing things uh, the same way. And for the most part, that worked out really well. You get a standard, fairly standard pronunciation of the whole Old Testament, except for one word. One word was a problem. And there was, the reason is, there was a word that was considered so special that it was Jewish people just didn't pronounce it. And so when they came to that word, the word was Yahweh, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would replace another word for God in there, and the word was Adonai. And so every time, uh, like I have in verse 4, they, or line 4, they would say Adonai, which means Lord, right? And so they change out the word completely because they, they don't even want to speak the words that God spoke in Genesis 3. And so every time somebody came to the word Yahweh, he or she said the word Adonai. And therefore, you didn't hear your parents pronouncing it or mispronouncing it. And yet, when they had to put in the vowels, they didn't know what vowels to put in. So they put in the vowels for the word Adonai. And they put them into the consonants of Yahweh. And that's what you see in line three there. And so uh, by doing this, they ended up with a writing that you see in line three, but they still weren't going to say the word Yahweh. They're still going to say the word Adonai. And this is one of the reasons there's difficulty understanding the present or the, or the future tense of this. And so um, in your English Bibles, if you look, when the word Yahweh is there, it typically has capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
And if the word Adonai is there, it means Lord. It has capital L, but small O-R-D, typically. Okay, And so that's how we distinguish between the two words. The, if you had older English Bibles, they would use the word Jehovah for, for Yahweh, but you don't see Jehovah around much anymore. I did hear there was a new Bible coming out in which they were putting Jehovah back in, but uh, uh, that's, that's a different thing. To our point, this story, the story, uh, let me make sure. To our point, the issue is when you're left with this, you get about one of four options for translation. You could either say, I am what I am, I am who I am, I will be what I will be, or I will be who I will be. Okay? And, and um, they, they, obviously, if you're, you're not going to call God a what, so it's I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, and English translations take this very, uh, one of those two options. So, why did I take you down that winding road? other than I find it very interesting. Why take you down that winding road? It's, it's important, I think, because God is declaring who he is. It, it's God's way of saying, I, this is me. And what he does is he takes two words having this state of being, and, and this is crazy. I mean, if you think about it. If you were to ask a thousand people to either name or describe God, nobody would come up with this description. Nobody would say, I am who I am. God has to give that to us. And, and he, the point is, he's not just naming himself, he's describing who he is. As a matter of fact, while he calls this a name, and it's used as a name, it's, it's at, at the heart of it a description of his essence, right? And he does this without using adjectives in this place. Now, in other places in scripture, he'll say, I am holy. Here he doesn't compare himself to holiness or eternality or anything like that. He just says, I am. And so when Moses says, who am I, what am I going to say? What am I going to tell the Israelites when they ask who you are? And God answered, I am who I am. What does that mean? When God says, I am who I am, he at least is talking about three things. He's at least claiming deity. And if you were wondering who, he, who the angel of the Lord is, he is God. He is God. He's emphasizing the difference between the created and the uncreated. God is not formed. He's not fashioned. He's not created. He's not born. He's a self-existence. He's independent from everything else. He's in a class by himself of creator. He's not created. John 5.26 says there's life in himself. He's not given life. He is life. He's, he's independent. He's not dependent on anything. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, see now that I am, that I, I am he, and there's no God besides me, it is I who put to death, and I give life. I've wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. He is God. I am who I am is an absolute statement of what it means to be God. He's judged by no other standard than himself. No one can evaluate him. No one can critique him. He answers to no other because there is no other like him. 
I do what I want to do is a statement that only God can make, ultimately. It's only God who can say that accurately. And there's no, state of, there's no sense or state or measurement of right outside of himself that he is to be measured by. And if you think about that, that's overwhelming. The thought of that kind of power, of that kind of freedom, of that kind of autonomy, of that kind of being, is incredibly terrifying if it's not matched with that kind of love and that kind of righteousness that he also is. I am who I am is a statement of who he is as God. Secondly, I am who I am describes a God who is alive, a God who exists. 400 years of silence should not be mistaken for the death of God. It should not be mistaken for deterioration of God. God is, and he is a fact. He is. And moreover, since this is true, since God is a fact, then it must be that he is the most significant fact out there. If he exists, then the most significant fact is that God, this person, exists. If God is right when he says, I am who I am, then there is nothing more important than he is. So whatever is on your list of significant and critical things, when God says, I am, everything else moves down in the list. That suddenly is more important and more significant than everything else. When you came in here this morning, the most significant thing on your list may have been your diagnosis, your marriage, your debt, your promotion, the good things in your life, the bad things in your life. All those things seem fairly significant to me. However, whatever was on top of your list, let me bump that down by saying, the angel of the Lord says, I am who I am. That moves everything down the list of importance and value. And you have to get that number one thing in the number one position, and you have to get that straight. Because if, if the most important thing is that God is, then you can't see all these other things clearly or rightly until you see it through that first fact. What I mean is if you want to look at your diagnosis correctly and rightly, you have to see it through the fact that God is who he is. If you want to look at your marriage rightly and correctly, you have to see it through the fact that God is who he is. If you want to look at your debt right, you need to, have to, you need to be able to see that through the fact that God is who he is. And if you want to look at your promotion correctly, you have to see it rightly through the fact that God is who he is. And so if you don't get this fact straight, you're going to mess up every other fact there is as well. Because this is a fact that shapes your whole worldview. It's the glasses through which you see everything or nothing. It's the most critical thing that you'll understand I'm quoting somebody else when I say the most significant thought you'll ever have is what you think when I say the word God. When God says I am who I am, he asserts the fact that he exists and his existence changes everything. The third is this is a claim to eternality. 
when God says, I am who I am, it's different than when Patrick says, I am who I am. When I say, I am who I am, I'm trying to pin down a moving target. Because I change. As soon as I say I am who I am, I change and at least get older. If nothing else, I got older since I said that, right? When God says this, it means he has always been who he is and he will always be who he is. He is eternal. For him, was, is, and will be are all the same. It's a claim to eternality. This speaks of time for one thing. My soul... My soul is, is eternal in the sense that it's going to live forever in the future. So is yours. You're eternal as well. And the fact that you will live eternally in the future, even in, either in heaven or in hell. Everybody lives forever in the future. However, I didn't live eternally in the past. I cranked things up about 1965. Before that, there was no past. My eternality goes towards the future, but not towards the past. God is both eternally past and eternally future. He's eternal in both directions. However, that really doesn't say enough. It doesn't capture the difference and distinctions from him and us. To say that God is eternal means that he has a different quality of existence as well. We are creatures, and he is not. We can't experience as creatures what it means to experience eternality as the creator. He has, un, he has an unending nature about him and an unbeginning nature about him, and he's in every point between those two things. From the beginning to the end and everything in the middle, he is. And before time and during time and after time, all is now to him. Moreover, everywhere is here for him. There's no place where he's not in existence. There's no time or no space that finds him, finds him absence, but neither is he captured by time or space. And this is not only true about him, this is true, ev true about everything about him. For example, his will is eternal. His justice is eternal. His righteousness is eternal. His love is eternal. His salvation is eternal. Ephesians 1 says that God put his love on his people before the foundation of the world. Christian, before you were born, your salvation was coming towards you. It was coming towards you before Adam and Eve. And when he says, I am who I am, it means that time has not changed our God. He is unfazed and unchanged by the twists of history and the twists in your personal life. That hasn't changed God. And this ought to give us some great hope, particularly when we've had a lot of twists and changes in our lives, that if probably taken us further from God at times. If you're a Christian who's gotten further from God, I have some good news for you. God says, I am who I am. He's there. Let me explain it from Malachi 3.6. It says, for I am the Lord and I do not change. Let me help you with that. I am the Lord and I do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you're not consumed. This verse is in the context of the sons of Jacob rejecting the Lord, going away from the Lord. Not, not purposely or angrily or suddenly, but just drifting, going away from the Lord until they find themselves not near him. Now, anybody else would have dealt with this group of people by dropping them like a hot rock. They would have destroyed him. If you were God, you might have been angry at that. At very least, you 
would have let them go and you go a different direction. That's what you and I would do. But God doesn't do that because he doesn't change. And that's where our hope is. That's where our hope is. Our hope is not in the ups and downs of my spiritual life. My hope is not in the facts that the God who loved us from the foundation of the earth, the Christ who, denied, who died thousands of years before we're born, or the Holy Spirit who applied all that Christ did to me, our hope is not in the fact that he's like me. Our hope is in the fact that he is eternal. That he never changes. That that he is the eternal I am who I am and his love and disposition towards us doesn't change in that way. We're not, we're not dependent on the hope that we get better. I personally see little evidence of that in my life. I can't bank on my consistency. I need him to be consistent. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he's, he's spoken, and he will not make it good? Regardless of who you are, he hasn't changed. Your sin is great, but grace hasn't changed. Your apathy is lifeless, but grace hasn't changed. Your attention is lost, but grace hasn't changed. You've moved from God, but his grace hasn't changed. Your selfish lifestyle is intense, but he has not changed. His grace has not changed. He loved you then. He loves you now. He saves you then. You are saved. He joined himself to you. He is with you. You are with him. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he's the beginning, he's the end. He is not just the author of our faith, he's the finisher of it. He not only begins a good work in you, he completes it. That's because he is the I am who I am, and he has always been who he currently is, and he, is always, he will always be who he has always been and who he always is. And there is our hope that God is who he is. And so when God said, I am who I am, he at least said that he is deity. He at least said that he's alive and he's eternal. But honestly, we could go on and on with the attributes of God. When, when Moses heard, I am who I am, by way of introduction, I don't know what Moses thought. I don't know what thoughts came through his head. It doesn't say. However, Moses is going to go on to have several more intimate experiences with God like this. And I think the reality of verse 15 implies the truth of verse 14, which was overwhelming. Why, why does God say what he does in 15? Because I think 14 is overwhelming. I think Moses was overwhelmed. And God goes on to 15 and says, God furthermore said to Moses, thus used to say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, that's the word Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial name to all generations. 
So God gives Moses not only I am who I am, but something a little bit more concrete, a little bit more understandable, uh, a little bit more familiar that Moses could explain to these people. He's telling him he is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this covenant-making God, the one who made covenant with the forefathers and the patriarchs, is the one who is Yahweh, speaking to Moses. And Moses, when he says this to him, it's going to ring a bell. Okay, we know what God you're coming from now. That'll let them know. That'll let them know that I've remembered them. And God will act. Now, this passage has huge reverberations throughout Scripture. One of the ways you know that this is a significant idea is in John 8 towards the end there were there's a scene in which Jesus is speaking to people who knew very well this story and standing among them Jesus said something outrageous he said before Abraham before Abraham was born I am they, like you, immediately knew what he was saying. He was immediately claiming to be God. He was immediately quoting the angel of the Lord, saying that he was the angel of the Lord. And, and he was coming to be the angel of the Lord in that day as well. He was claiming deity, godly existence, eternality. And they understood that. Because from their perspective, when somebody stands in front of you and claims to be God, there's only two options. Either you kneel down and worship that person because that is God. Or you kill that person because he's being blasphemous and claiming what should never be spoken. And so that day they picked up stones and they tried to kill Jesus. They wanted to rid themselves of the thought and the man. For most of the people at that time, in front of him that day, worship was not a consideration. Today, the options really haven't changed. You can either rid yourself of Jesus, or you can lean towards him in worship and in faith. But there's no question that he is who he is, and he is God, and all God's eternality, divinity. All of God's attributes are true in Jesus Christ. And he is the one who says, I am who I am. The question becomes, will we bow and worship? Or are we going to push him away? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're grateful that you are who you are. Our our needs are so great that if you are not who you are, we are in serious trouble. We need you to be who you are. And Lord, we need to respond well to who you are. I'm speaking to people who no doubt have professed to be Christians for a long time. And they need to, once again, we need to turn to you as God to recognize that you never change 
and we have drifted from you, and we need to worship you again. I'm speaking to probably some people who have never considered you as God, never responded well to you as God, never responded in faith. I pray that you would move those as well towards you in worship. Don't let them push you away anymore, but draw them to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.